I just love seeing you all come in like this. He's talking about the new refiners joining the Severed Patreon page. Just $5 a month and no cranial drill required. Go to patreon.com slash severed pod. Okay, you're all set. Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Welcome back, Macro Data Refiners. This is Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. I'm your host, Alan S. So glad to see you decided to join me for a postseason wrap-up. This time, instead of firing up the workstations, let's all sit in a comforting circle of chairs. I've got things to discuss that didn't fit in the podcast episodes, a few items I felt like I should have talked about more, a couple of things to correct, and of course... I'm going to ask a lot of big questions I don't have any answers for. If you're ready, refiners, let's get out the red rubber ball and pass it around as we discuss our season wrap-up. My first thought after the big cliffhanger was, how do they get out of this? And by they, I'm talking about the writing and creative team. This is quite a situation they have to deal with. The whole idea of innies breaking into the Audi world has serious implications. I see two broad story paths they might employ to kick off season two. Either continue the narrative or a time jump. The first option, continuing the narrative, would continue with the ongoing timeline kind of storytelling we've seen so far. The first nine episodes happened in a continuous arc over three weeks. For most of our episodes, we were picking up right where the previous chapter left off. Petey staying at Mark's, Helly in the break room, Helly's suicide, Mark and Grainer going to Gans College, throwing the OTC switches. All of those story points were carried through the end of one episode right into the start of the next episode. The only time the story wasn't continuous from one episode to the next was during the flashback at the start of the second episode. It's the one where we went back to see Helly get severed and start her day on the severed floor from her Audi perspective. This episode actually backed up and repeated what we'd seen in the first episode, only from another perspective. Every other episode, when we're coming back from one of those killer cliffhangers, it's carried on the timeline as a continuous narrative. Since we've been primed with this storytelling structure throughout season one, could that be how they decide to handle it from season to season? At the start of season two, could we be looking at what happens the second after the OTC switches were released and the Audis return? For me as a viewer and as a fan, this is where I want to be at the start of season two. I'm really wanting season one, episode 10. I realize starting season two one second after the end of season one is the more difficult story path to pull off, but it is definitely the one I want. I have some thoughts as to how they might get away with it. I'll get to those in a minute. The other option I mentioned would be a time jump and something fairly significant, like six months. If the worst happens and the innies memories are clean slated, we may see our beloved group of macrodats starting over again as newbies to the severed floor. The four macrodats would be punished and reset. They are then separated and scattered to other parts of the severed floor. As hard as it would be to see, this story path makes logical sense, especially from Lumen's perspective. As a viewer, 
I hate the thought of losing everything we've learned in season one. We've seen how disruptive it can be for innies to have information in their heads about the Audi world. Knowing about his son destroyed Dylan as an innie. I can see where the board or whoever makes these decisions might decide it's too dangerous to have severed workers with that much knowledge about the Audi world, and especially knowledge about the existence of the OTC. They could be sentenced to a clean slate procedure. Resetting an any has to be a drastic capital punishment level move. As Mark says, it's akin to killing this perceptual version of you. Callously killing off innies and starting them over does, however, fit with what we've learned so far about Lumen. If I get a vote, I'm definitely a fan of keeping the MDR crew together and continuing the story from the point where we left it. I'd want the Macrodats to remain as a unit with their memories of season one intact. Since the continuous storyline is the one I want to see, it's going to be the one I explore in this podcast. Let's back up for a second and talk about what we saw in the finale. What really happened and just how damaging is it big picture? What spot is each of these Audis in at the point where the OTC switches off? The Audi's body has basically been commandeered by the Innie for the past 25 minutes or so. I'm basing this estimate on Natalie telling Helly she was on in 20 minutes just after Helly'd switched. Nat was tackling her at the start of her speech right when the OTC switched off, so the Innies were in the house for roughly 20 to 25 minutes. There was no warning about the switch for the Audi. It's not like getting on the elevator where you know your perception will be shut off when you push the button. The Audi isn't going to know where they are or why they are suddenly in such a different situation than they were, according to their perception, just a moment ago. I want to go through each of these Audi situations, starting with the least damaging. I also want to explore how this story might continue in Season 2, Episode 1. I'd say Irv is the any who impacted the Audi world least. He may be the most active Audi on his own when it comes to investigating Lumen, but his any didn't do much while he was switched. We left him at the end of the finale banging on Bert Goodman's door. He was planning to tell Bert G's Audi about his any situation. Irv's any figured Bert's Audi was his best hope, so he's banging on Bert's door when the switch is thrown. Suddenly, Audi Irv Bailiff, who had a trowel full of black paint raised and ready to go when he was switched, is now banging on the door of a house he might not know, owned by a guy named Bert Goodman. Irv will understandably be pretty confused. The bland vanilla way to go with the story would be to have Bert open the door to a confused Audi Irv. Bert asks if he can help. Audi Irv turns away, saying he's sorry to have bothered them, and he's gone. Plausible, but not a lot of fun as a story thread. Getting Irv out of this spot while maintaining the continuous timeline is probably the easiest of the three. We were bummed to see Bert's Audi has a significant other because we were looking at this situation through any Irv's eyes. Think about Audi Irv's perspective. As an Audi, Irv's had this list of severed employees for a while. He's been assembling the information on all Lumen severed employees for what has probably been years. That's just based on seeing his severed employee list. He may not have been doing this research alone. 
They like each other down there, so Herb's Audi is most likely also going to be drawn to Bert Goodman up here. Since Bert G's Audi is in a relationship, could Audi Irv possibly have become a friend of the couple? He had the info on Bert's Audi in his footlocker. He easily could have been in contact with Bert prior to this OTC incident. It's possible Audi Bert will open the door to his friend Audi Irv. Maybe they'll talk and realize Irv's somehow been hijacked. They might then sit down and figure out what could have happened to cause Audi Irv to lose a big chunk of his night and wind up here on Bert's front stoop. We know Bert's back for season two because Christopher Walken is listed as appearing in all 10 episodes. If not as a friend of Audi Irv, we know we're going to be seeing Bert somewhere. Since Bert is now retired, it probably won't be around Lumen. Could Audi Bert be signing up for the resistance, helping Irv and the other innies escape the clutches of the severed floor? He's alive! Next most damaging as an innie has to be Mark. Unfortunately, he may be putting his family in harm's way. Devin knows Mark's innie was at the book reading. She spoke to Mark's innie extensively and understands it would have been his innie screaming she's alive in those final seconds of the finale. I don't know if she will immediately make the connection to Gemma, but he is going to switch while holding the wedding picture, so I think they'll figure it out. Based on what we've learned about Lumen, especially when it comes to secrets about the Severance program, Devon may now be in danger. She knows about the severed floor torture, the mistreatment, the bizarre working conditions. As far as we know, any Mark had time to give her all of this. I'm guessing they had about 10 minutes of actual talk time. She mentioned taking it to journalists so she understands how serious it is. Remember what happened to Peggy Kincaid, who wrote the Lexington letter. After sending the letter, she wound up in a fatal car accident. Devin's going to be a strong witness, even when it comes to proving these things to Audi Mark. I can see Audi Mark resisting the explanation. He will need convincing. If anybody can convince him, his faithful and rational sister Devon's probably the best one to do it. Otherwise, she should maybe be very careful about who she talks to. I just hope she doesn't wind up running into a tree in the very near future. Audi Mark might be a tough one to sell on the idea his innie is unhappy. Mark has proven to be a loyal company man as an Audi. He has claimed repeatedly he doesn't want to reintegrate, even if it's possible. He's convinced himself his innie is fine, and he's content to continue to check out for eight hours a day. Audi Mark's attitude has been changing, and just since we've met him. We've seen his feelings evolve in just the past couple of weeks. Audi Mark was starting to show signs of sympathy to his innie after meeting Petey. Even more so when Innie Helly started to introduce Innie Mark to Innie Discontent. Prior to Helly, any qualms Innie Mark may have had about his severed existence were being contained. He had his buddy Petey and seemed, if not happy, at least accepting of his Innie existence. Remember, he told Helly there's a life to be had here. I think he really believed it. Things have changed significantly in the last three weeks. When you combine the Heli influence down there with the Rigabi influence up here, plus finding Rickon's book, that's a lot of pressure building on both marks to change their situation. 
Petey said you feel the hurt down there. Feelings most likely go both ways. Bert's Audi mentioned feeling exhilarated when he would get home. I think Rickon's book and any Helly's influence on any Mark's emotions became a driving factor behind the change in Audi Mark's attitude. Audi Mark took a pretty big risk by carrying Grainer's black key card onto the severed floor. It wasn't huge, but for someone as by the rules as Audi Mark, it was definitely a risk. At Ragabi's urging, Audi Mark was ready to take that risk for the sake of his innie. This is not an attitude Audi Mark would have had about his innie even a couple of weeks prior. Remember his company line response to Ragabi. My innie lives his own life. And as a result, uh, I get to live mine. I think Audi Mark is starting to wonder if everything really is peachy with his innie. For some reason, it doesn't feel that way at the end of the day. Mark is among friends, or at least acquaintances, and family when he both switches and switches back. He only moved to another room in the house while switched. Devin's the only one who definitely knows, and I'm sure she could keep it quiet. Rickon will still be glowing from any Mark's earlier compliments, but I don't think he would be aware enough to catch the fact he was talking to any Mark. The only real potential fly in Mark's ointment is Cobell. She knew he'd switched. Since what was happening out at Lumen suddenly became the front burner emergency, Cobell doesn't know how much Mark was able to leak to Devon. She also wasn't there when Mark made the connection between Gemma and Ms. Casey. I'm quite sure both Innie and Audi Mark attempting to rescue Gemma is going to be a driving factor behind much of the Season 2 storyline. Can Audi Mark continue as though his Innie was undetected after the switches are thrown? I think yes, and pretty easily. Audi Mark would have to decide he really wants to do this, then he would need to work out the details with Devin. All he'll need as motivation is to know about Gemma, and he's definitely going to want to do this. Devin's role in covering up what she knows is key when it comes to not alerting Cobell. Devin would have to convince Selvig she didn't know about the OTC switch, she didn't talk to Mark Sinney, and Mark didn't reveal the Cobell identity. She would also have to keep Selvig on as her lactation consultant, even though this will now creep her out constantly because of what she knows. If Devin can be convincing enough, it might make Cobell question how much damage was really done by any Mark at Beerhouse. Mark definitely called her Cobell, but maybe any Mark didn't have a chance to make his case with anyone before the switches were thrown. Cobell had seen just how controlling Rickon was when it came to the proceedings at Beerhouse. It wouldn't be hard to imagine the restrictions of the reading, keeping any Mark quiet until the switches were thrown back. So, at Beerhouse, Eleanor has been found, Mark has switched back, and I would imagine Rickon is going to get the reading going again in about five minutes. His focus is all about his book. Devin and Audi Mark probably won't be able to talk things over until after the reading. We're prisoners! For our most potentially damaging any in an Audi world situation, let's talk Heli. Heli was, of course, the real Hellraiser when it came to any malice. She was able to get out several damning bits of very public info before Natalie tackled her. The big question for our continuous timeline 
Is it possible for Heli's Audi to continue as though nothing happened? Maybe. Yes, Heli made her declarations in front of a crowd, but remember it was a room full of Lumen faithful. It might be possible to contain their reactions. They were also a little confused. There was nervous laughter, but I'm sure there was also a lot of confusion about what they were seeing and hearing. I'm wondering if there was a news crew covering any of this. I didn't see one. If there's outside video of Heli saying those things, it's harder to hide or refute. Lumen may have opted to close the gala to news people in favor of having Natalie and the Lumen PR department release a story about the event after the fact. This is fairly common among large corporations so they can control the narrative about a newsworthy event. Natalie would be able to craft an appropriate message, putting the weird comments in the proper light, or more than likely she's just going to ignore them altogether. If somebody was shooting video on their cell phone, we may wind up with a security breach at some point in Season 2. In the moment after Dylan released the OTC switches, Audi Heli is now laying on the floor in front of the gala crowd. She was just tackled by Natalie, so Natalie is down there with her. Being on the floor is going to be disorienting, but they would have a few seconds to communicate, maybe even a few minutes if they can get backstage. If Natalie realizes Heli switched back and can bring Audi Heli up to speed on what just happened, they might be able to recover. Remember, Natalie was with Audi Heli upstairs when she switched to her innie. When she switches back, Audi Heli will at least have this connection to Natalie. Natalie will be able to fill in the missing 20 minutes. Audi Heli wants to make this severed employee presentation work as much as Natalie. She also seems to have the personality and savvy to pull it off based on her performance in the propaganda video. If Audi Heli can come back with a message along the lines of, what you just saw is unfortunately what most people incorrectly associate with innies. Do you really think I would be severed if I thought my innie were being tortured? We all should react the way Natalie did when we hear untruths like these about innies. I can hear Helena's speech in my head. She might be able to save it. It would require a lot of spin, but if Audi Heli can continue with the message she was planning, talk about her Innie as her sister, she might be able to get the crowd past Innie Heli's somewhat weird intro. She is talking to true Lumen believers, so it might be easier to get them to accept this story, or at least forgive the weirdness, so our three innies may not have caused as much trouble as it first appears. I think the continuous storyline could be preserved without resetting the gang from MDR. Aside from the three switched macrodats, we also have to consider where Kobel, Milchik, Dylan, Devon, and possibly even Natalie are left in the wake of this OTC incident. Who the hell do you think you are? No. Your friends are going to suffer. Cobell was a witness to two out of the three any scenarios. If she were still Cobell, high queen of the severed floor, I can see where this would be a scary problem. I don't know how big a deal she can make out of this now that she's been fired. Cobell has always been a moving target when it comes to motivations, allegiance, and even authority. As of the night of the gala, she's unemployed. 
She doesn't have an office on the severed floor anymore. She doesn't control the innies lives like she thinks she does, at least for now. You never know with Cobell, and there is always the chance she is going to work her way back into her old job. Since it's Cobell, you know she's going to be a force wherever she winds up, but her power may be diminished around Lumen in Season 2. Her whole attitude may also have changed. If you remember in the episode What's for Dinner, she was telling Mark to quit right before he switched over to his innie. Cobell's a cure zealot. I don't think you can ever discount that completely when it comes to Harmony. A lot has changed for her in the last couple of days. Maybe she's no longer as committed to Lumen as she once was. Getting fired will do that to you. Even though she may be anti-Lumen, she does still seem to be very protective of the severance program. Once she was at the gala, she went into that whole rant with Helly about we'll keep them alive and in pain. Frightening, but it felt like she was grasping at straws. Her overriding motivation was to stop Helly. Whether she's working there or not, Cobell seems to have this strong protective attitude about the severance program. Her backstage comments tell us she was willing to try anything to stop Helly from trashing severance. I don't know why Cobell would go to such extremes. Cobell's the one who stopped the OTC. She managed with one phone call and a reckless rabbit ride to almost stop Helly, shut off the OTC, and in effect, she managed to protect the Egans. Milchik wouldn't have known what Dylan was up to until much later if Cobell hadn't figured out Mark had switched to his innie and called Seth. This all happened mere hours after she'd been fired by Natalie, forced off the severed floor, and had smashed her shrine to Kier. This night could have been Cobell's vengeance. The fact she didn't take advantage of the situation is telling. Had Cobell truly been vindictive, she'd have just kept quiet about the OTC. When she heard Mark call her Cobell, she could have just smiled and enjoyed watching Lumen burn. Since she didn't allow the OTC to bring down Lumen, this may refute those theories that say Cobell's working to bring Lumen down from within. What better opportunity for someone looking to do damage than to allow a public and very embarrassing OTC to continue? Cobell is still such a huge mystery. She has some creepy fixation with Mark, and she has her own Lumen agenda, which has yet to be revealed. There are so many theories swirling everywhere around Cobell. How about we swirl a few of them right now? I like this one. Lumen accuses Cobell, the isolated, vengeful former employee who's branded as a liar, of fabricating the OTC incident. Since Cobell is the only one to have supposedly witnessed both Mark and Helly's innies in an Audi world, the story of the OTC rests on her word alone. Sure, you saw it, Harmony, and on the same day you were fired. Such a coincidence. An OTC initiated by a group of innies would be a horribly embarrassing incident. Would Seth Milchik have allowed something like that to take place on his watch down on the severed floor? This is where I do see Seth turning on Cobell to save himself. If he denies there was an OTC, Dylan just had his waffle party and went home. 
it saves him any possible retribution for allowing an OTC to happen. There does not seem to be any oversight for what's happening down on the severed floor. The watchful eyes down there don't seem to extend beyond the empty security office formerly occupied by Doug Grainer. If Milchik denies an OTC happened, Harmony is branded a liar. Well, of course she's lying. She's just been fired. I don't think Seth is going to feel as strongly about protecting Cobell now that she's no longer his boss or even on the Lumen payroll. I also think Seth's self-preservation will be a motivating factor in his actions. He doesn't want to be accused of allowing an OTC to happen. If he admits to this one, it might mean admitting to the unauthorized OTC he ran on Dylan just a couple of nights earlier. Another Cobell theory is Harmony as the daughter of Kier. This one is fun, but impossible if we believe the years we've been given. The Charlotte Cobell tag on the breathing tube says her birth was in 1944. Kier died in 1939. If Charlotte is truly Harmony's mother, she and Kier missed each other on this terrestrial plane by about five years. There is a similar theory saying Cobell is the illegitimate daughter of Charlotte and Jame Egan. This theory would make Helly and Harmony half-sisters. It might also explain Cobell's enrollment in the Myrtle Egan School and her almost rabid devotion to both Kier and Lumen. An offshoot of this theory has Ambrose fathering Charlotte before his death. This one might be a stretch, but we don't know exactly when Ambrose died. The theory says Charlotte's mother was part of some dalliance with Ambrose because Ambrose has all this bad sheep mojo surrounding him. This would make Ambrose Harmony's illegitimate but biological grandfather. I'm not a fan of this one just because of the timing. I don't think Ambrose was around long enough to father a child born in March of 1944. There are several of these maternity and paternity theories floating around. One of the more popular ones ties Rickon in as Harmony and James' illegitimate son. Rickon might be a little old for this one to work, but if this is the case, it would also explain Harmony's attraction to baby Eleanor. According to this theory, baby Eleanor would be Cobell's granddaughter. This theory would also explain Cobell knowing the details of Rickon's writing career and even calling him a wordsmith. Of course she's a fan. It's her son. I don't know why Rickon wouldn't recognize Mom unless, of course, he's been severed and his innie is the author. However she's connected, we do have to consider the question, what is up with Harmony's attraction to Eleanor? Selvig's lactation consultant to the stars thing is new, kind of surprising, and adds another wrinkle to her overall motives. We found out during her firing she's doing this on her own, and the board is not happy about it. She may not be grandma, but something is driving Cobell to take an active interest in the rearing of Eleanor Hale. Is having Cobell around Eleanor potentially dangerous? I don't think so, based on what we've seen so far. She's good at the whole lactation thing, and she does seem to have the baby's best interests at heart. I also don't think she really needed the work. She has some other motivation for wanting to be in the Hale household. 
Devin and Selvig seem to have developed a bond. If Devin does try to cover up the visit by any mark, she's going to need to forgive Selvig for dumping Eleanor at the reading and accept Selvig back into her house. Mark Saudi also has to continue to recognize the upworld Selvig persona as though nothing happened. This should be easy because Audi Mark has never met Cobell. Since Devin knows about the deception, she needs to be careful not to be too guarded around Selvig. Letting Cobell think nothing has changed is going to be the best thing for Mark and for us as the viewer, but it might be hard for Devin to do. If Rickon and Devin fire Selvig as their lactation consultant slash nanny, we might never discover Selvig's true reason for wanting to be around Eleanor. Firing her would also be letting on just how much any Mark revealed to them during the OTC. Depending on Cobell's ultimate Lumen agenda, I've got another story twist that might be fun. This would also fit nicely into the continuous timeline. What if an ousted Cobell became an ally to Mark and the Macrodads? She might decide she needs MDR's help to do whatever it is she's wanting to do to Lumen especially if she's now on the outside. The MDR crew is still on the inside. Well, at least they are unless this OTC stunt comes to light. She knows if the OTC is revealed, they might all wind up getting canned, getting reset, or maybe worst of all, getting sent to the testing floor. If the OTC can be kept quiet, the MDR group could continue to operate as a unit and without being clean slated. I think Cobell on their side would be cool. She's going to have a deeper knowledge of the Lumen hierarchy than the Innies. She can supply them with info about this severance program and even the company. She could also be a source for info about useful things on the severed floor. Cobell might even be able to tell them about the Coil of Doom or what's up with the baby goats or even what MDR is really doing. If she does come over to the side of the Macrodats, I can see Cobell being an exposition bomb greater than Petey. I will, of course, miss her presence down on the severed floor. Her interactions with Mark as Cobell were always off the charts. We serve gear! So it may be possible to roll Selvig slash Cobell into the ongoing continuous timeline. It might even give us more clues into her whole deal. Come on, man! I want to remember my fucking kid being Dylan may be in the most precarious and dangerous situation of the four Macrodads. Although he didn't wake up outside, he was caught red-handed in the security office by Milchik. He has Dead Grainer's black key card on him. Unfortunately, I think the gang is going to be forced to hand over this oh-so-valuable item. Dylan initiated an OTC. Milchik is surely going to make the connection between what happened the other night at Audi Dillon's home and this latest infraction. Milchik's visit to Dillon's closet is the only possible way any of them could know about the OTC. Going from knowing about it to actually running one is a big leap, but Seth will realize there has to be a connection. Prior to when Seth did it to Dillon, nobody in MDR knew waking up outside was even a possibility. Now that he's tackled Dylan, what's Milchik going to do with him? As far as we can tell, Seth does not have backup. There are no other administrators or security people anywhere on the severed floor that we're aware of. Would Milchik take Dylan to the break room? 
tie him up until he can get help? Are the two of them going to continue to fight on the floor of the security office? Could Dylan possibly overpower Milchik and make an escape to the severed elevator? Dylan is pretty fired up. The immediate aftermath of the OTC in the security office is going to be tense and, I'm betting, pretty physical. I don't know if there'll be more biting, but we can't rule it out. Ah! Ah! He's biting me! Dylan, what the hell? If we go with the continuous timeline structure for our story, the start of the second season may find Seth calling for help on his radio from the floor of the security office. This might be when we finally meet other members of the severed floor administrative staff. We know at least eight new regular cast members are coming on for season two. This might be where a couple of them get introduced. Maybe I don't want it deactivated. Right. Well, maybe Ernie does. You wonder what he thinks about all this, don't you? You wonder if he's happy? I want to talk about new cast members, but before we do, let's talk Ragabi. We already met her, but barely. She's as much a future character as anyone, and I think she's going to become a big part of season two. We know about her because of the Grainer incident, but we weren't even formally introduced. Who are you? For me, Rigabi was the character with the most potential, but delivered the least of anyone in the first season. When you think about it, she didn't do anything other than kill both Petey and Grainer. Sure, she reintegrated Petey, but her success rate is not good. Right after she killed Grainer and handed over his keycard, she told Mark she'd be in touch. She said they would continue the work Petey started. I think Rigabi sees Mark as her next attempt at reintegration. I know she said Petey messed up by not following post-op instructions, but he was her first patient. This all still feels really dangerous and untested. As dangerous as it might be, I think Mark is going to decide he has to give reintegration a try in order to save Gemma. If he can continue to appear severed, it means he can get down there at least close to Gemma every day. This is why I think Mark will allow Ragabi to make him patient number two. Petey has already proven a reintegrated worker can ride the severed elevator and function on the severed floor undetected. Well, he wasn't entirely undetected. Prior to his departure, there were some troubling signs of possible... Reintegration. But he was believable enough to stay down there for nearly two weeks without anyone questioning him. Like Petey, I can see Mark deciding to reintegrate and continue working on the severed floor in hopes of gathering information with the ultimate goal of saving Gemma. It's like having two different lives suddenly stitched together. But the relativity's fucked. Speaking of poor dead Petey, I didn't really get into Petey's reintegration timeline during the podcast, but I do think we should discuss it. His last two weeks of work were, for the most part, unsevered, but he must have been experiencing malfunctions. Petey was in on Thursday. In the first episode of the season, it's Friday, the next day. Mark even mentioned to Dylan. You sick? Maybe. Petey was sniffling yesterday. Yeah, sleeping in a cold, abandoned greenhouse will do that to you. 
This was the same day Mark was told Petey was no longer with the company and he was now the department chief. Two days later, Sunday night of that weekend is when Petey met with Mark at Pips and said he'd been reintegrated for two weeks. This means Petey may have had eight or nine unsevered work days where he was still going to the severed floor and pretending to be a severed worker. I'm not sure how he was pulling it off, especially if he was living in the abandoned greenhouse and experiencing reintegration sickness. Somehow he was still managing to show up for work. It's possible the reintegration sickness didn't get bad enough to keep him away until that Friday, but I'm still not sure what he was doing for a shower and a shave out at the greenhouse. I'm hoping Petey did more spy stuff during those unsevered work days than just draw the floor map. Remember how Petey told Mark he left the original of the map down on the severed floor for him to find? Maybe the map wasn't the only thing. If Petey was working on the severed floor as an unsevered worker for nearly two weeks, I think it's possible he left other goodies. Since his chip was malfunctioning, he may have forgotten everything he did. If he hid other notes or information, like in the storeroom or somewhere in the kitchenette, we could still get more exposition from Petey. This, of course, relies on reassembling this same group of macrodats in the same workspace so they can find Petey's info. This stuff you don't even know about. There's this paintball. There's coffee cozies. Dylan, come on. Getting back to the implications of the OTC, what about Milchik? I see Seth wanting to keep the whole thing very quiet. Seth loves his job. If word got out about an OTC performed by the Macrodats, he could be in serious trouble. When talking about severed floor administration, I see Seth staying on right where he is. He seems to be very good at what he does. I don't think Milchik is even angling for Cobell's job. At the same time, I don't think he cares if she gets hired back. Seth would be content with another boss as long as he gets to keep ruling the severed floor. This means Milchik has a pretty strong motivation for covering up the events of the OTC. It would not look good for him. Milchik is a dedicated and hardworking Lumen employee, but lately he's been getting out over his skis a bit when it comes to decisions. The 266 with Irv, the OTC with Dylan. Seth might be getting the reputation as a loose cannon. I think he wants more freedom and responsibility on the severed floor, but the way he's going about it is all wrong. I don't see Milchik changing a bit in the second season, and that's a good thing. Natalie, hello. Hi. Gabby, this is Helena Egan. A wild card in this whole keep the OTC quiet plan is Natalie. She may not know specifically about something called an OTC, but she knew there was a problem with Heli. As mentioned, I'm sure Audi Heli is going to want to cover up the OTC. Audi Heli is all about making this severed employee thing work. She's Heli, a severed story. How is it going to look if word gets out her any helped orchestrate some type of rebellion? If Audi Heli tells Natalie to keep quiet about whatever it is that happened, I'm sure she will. Where's that ball? I want to kick around a few ideas about severed floor story scenarios. So, as mentioned, the only possible story path I see, which could both keep MDR together and keep the administration in place, 
is a continuous storyline where they cover up the OTC. Cabell, Milchik, and the Macrodats all conspire to keep it quiet. I think they could, and it would be beneficial to all of them. They were able to cover up Helly's suicide attempt. I think they can cover this up, too. Mark keeps working in MDR. He realizes he has to keep working within the Lumen system. If he doesn't keep working as a severed employee, or at least appearing to be severed, he's never going to have a chance to rescue Ms. Casey slash Gemma from the Lumen testing floor. And a secondary storyline has to take place on the testing floor. They've teased us too much with the horrors of the testing floor to not go there. When we do, it's going to be all about Mark and Gemma. Mark's innie made a vital story connection, possibly the most important thing to happen in the finale, when he was able to link Audi Mark's wife to Ms. Casey. In season two, I see the testing floor becoming a big part of this story. Knowing Gemma is there will give Mark an objective. We will leave the severed floor at least part of the time, moving even deeper into the earth with scenes down on the testing floor. Whatever is going on down there must be horrible based on everybody's reaction to the door, the elevator. All of it just seems bad. But I'm also betting it doesn't seem bad. It probably appears as mundane and generic as the white hallways and understated signage of the severed floor. Since it's Lumen, there will probably be new administrators running whatever is going on down on the testing floor. This is a whole new area of operation, and it will need to be staffed. Some of our new cast members could be both inmates or even running things down on the testing floor. There are bound to be scientists and lab techs. The testing floor may be Rigabi's old stomping ground. Once we get to the testing floor, I'm sure we'll meet some of Petey's people who never leave. It does sound like you might have to die in the Audi world to become a part-time innie on the testing floor. This is based on Gemma's story. Irv may also have experience on the testing floor, but we don't know how much. Irv's Audi is not dead, so his time on the testing floor must have been limited or different somehow. If they decide to move Mark to the testing floor, are they going to kill him? I can see Lumen believably staging Mark's suicide. He's been despondent since the loss of his wife. He's severed. He's been living an isolated existence in Lumen housing. It wouldn't be a hard sell to make people believe he harmed himself in a bout of depression. Lumen could then snatch him the same way they seem to have grabbed Gemma and stick him down on the testing floor along with her. If Mark's Audi is dead, it does cut his story possibilities in half. Faking an Audi's death has to be a pretty big deal. I don't see how they could pull the same stunt with all of the refiners. It would look pretty suspicious. Plus, all testing floor with no Audi time is bound to get monotonous for us as viewers. It also limits story options. I'm pretty sure Helly won't be going to the testing floor. They haven't given her many passes as an any, but when it comes to testing floor, she'll probably be treated differently because of her family ties. At least one Macrodat would have to continue with an Audi persona, or we'd never leave the testing floor. 
I really do want to get down to the testing floor, but spending all of our time there probably is going to get old. Once Devin fills him in on the status of his supposedly dead wife, Audi Mark will be pushed even further towards discovering what Lumen is doing both on the severed floor and on the testing floor. Other than general curiosity, up to this point, Mark has never had a real goal for discovering the secrets of Lumen. Saving Gemma gives him a driving reason to know what's going on. Once Mark knows his wife is alive, he's going to be using every resource he can muster to try to save her. I would love for them to go with this reintegrated Mark keeps working to rescue Gemma storyline for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, I want a lot of our story to stay on the severed floor. The thing that makes the show weirdly quirky, compelling, and unique is the mystique of Lumen and the bizarre work environment of the severed floor. Dan Erickson has said season two will see an expansion of the severed floor. This would be awesome. I want to find more departments and explore more areas. This severed floor is the puzzle in this puzzle box. It's like a living game of D&D where every room holds another clue and another adventure. I also like this story path because of the potential to draw in the Audis of the other Macrodads. Dan Erickson and Ben Stiller have both said we will be seeing more of our refiners in their Audi lives during the second season. I'm guessing, okay, hoping, Dylan, Mark, and Irv all find each other as Audis. Helly probably won't be able to join them because of her family ties. There's got to be a reason they don't want the Audis to know each other or even run into each other. Keeping them from working together in order to help their innies might be a part of this planned isolation. Getting the Audis together shouldn't be too hard to do. We've seen how Audi Irv already has severed worker contact info, and he seems to have ways to get information. He could possibly connect with Audi Mark and the other Macrodets. The connected Audis could be working on ways to beat the code sensors so they can communicate with their innies. Peg Kincaid in the Lexington letter already made it clear it is possible to beat the code sensors. Or the other Macrodats might decide to give Ragabi a chance to reintegrate them as well. A storyline I hope we never see is a reset. I worry a lot about the implications of the clean slate. Mark and all of the Macrodats have to avoid being reset in order to hold on to their memories. If Mark gets reset as an innie, he won't remember what he's learned about Gemma and the Ms. Casey connection. It would be like the first season is wiped out. If he has to relearn everything, I don't think I can go through him discovering Gemma's identity all over again. A reset would just be too much to come back from. Aside from Harmony and Seth, possibly Natalie, no one else in Lumen management knows for sure the OTC took place. As far as we know, there aren't any security people monitoring the activities on the severed floor. If there were, I think they'd have caught the OTC when it first started. If there's another office somewhere monitoring the severed floor, they were sure quiet about this. Harmony only called Seth and Seth is the one who handled the situation directly. The chain of communication is very simple. 
There doesn't appear to be anybody else who could have reported what happened to potential higher-ups, especially now that Grainer sits with Keir. So fingers crossed for a continued MDR. If MDR goes on business as usual, where are all of these new cast members going to fit in? I know this might shock you, but I have a few theories. Regardless of who's running the severed floor, we definitely need a new head of security. No manner of retcon is going to bring Doug Grainer back from his encounter with Ragabi. Looking at the additions to the cast for season two, a couple of guys jump out as potential Grainer replacements. John Noble has the sour look and grizzled gravitas, but he might be a little old to get too physical with a wayward macrodat. So perhaps John is assisted in security by the dashing and, my, didn't he age well, Robbie Benson. Benson is a 67-year-old Renaissance man who was born in Dallas, Texas. One of his earliest starring roles was as Billy Joe McAllister in the 1976 movie based on the song Ode to Billy Joe. Benson has more than 80 IMDb credits as an actor, but he's done everything in the industry. He's directed more than 100 episodes of television. He does voiceover work, including providing the voice of the Beast in Disney's Beauty and the Beast from 1991. He's also a writer, producer, and university professor. I could see Robbie Benson being used in a couple of ways. He could be a member of Severed Floor Security we haven't met yet, but he could also be our new wellness director. Now that Miss Casey has been sent to the testing floor, we need somebody to read those Audi facts. Robbie Benson could easily be that guy. Staying with new cast speculation, let's talk about the tall and intimidating Gwendolyn Christie. I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan, so I already loved her as Lady Brienne of Tarth. I definitely see Ms. Christie stepping into a role in Severed Floor Administration. If Harmony is out, this could easily be her replacement. If Harmony manages to return, come on, it's Cobell. She's probably going to need someone to keep an eye on her. Although Harmony is a loyal acolyte of Kier, she did cover up a suicide attempt and may have been involved with whatever weirdness happened during the gala. I could see the board possibly reinstating a very contrite Harmony, but deciding she needs someone to look over her shoulder. Gwendolyn Christie could be perfect as that person. Maybe she's the executive sent from the corporate suite to police operations down on the severed floor. Who is more suited to go toe-to-toe with the oh-so-intimidating Harmony Cobell than the 6-3 Lady Brienne? Bob Balaban is also tagged as a Season 2 cast member. Balaban is a great character actor who has this defeated middle manager kind of energy about him. You might remember it was Bob Balaban who played the put-upon network executive on Seinfeld. Imagine Gwendolyn's character reporting to Balaban's character in the executive offices. We might get more information about the severance program and how it's being used company-wide. Then again, I could also see Bob Balaban as the new wellness director. Please keep in mind this is all wild speculation. I'd be shocked if any of it is right. But really, what else do we have to do between now and the start of season two? Looking at some of the younger new cast members, I'm seeing them as potential severed co-workers in new departments. I only know Aliyah Shawkett from her time on Arrested Development. She's got 95 IMDb credits and has been acting since she was 10 years old. 
Stefano Carinante is an entirely unknown performer. Severance is his first IMDb film or TV credit other than a short. I've loved new cast member Merritt Weaver since she started stealing scenes in Nurse Jackie all the way back in 2009. She was also great on The Walking Dead. Merritt's got the energy and the chops to give us a female counterpart to Dylan. I could see her creating something just as intense and hilarious as Zach Cherry's Dylan character. Oliver Derry Olofsson is another solid actor who has been announced as coming on board for season two. He could be severed, or he could be security. I'm betting they decide to beef things up in security after this OTC incident. Oliver is rather beefy. He's 6'3 and known for being an enormous presence. Olofsson has worked with Ben Stiller before he was a helicopter pilot in The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. On the romantic side, Olofsson and Gwendolyn Christie would make an impressive couple, wouldn't they? To this point, my speculation all relies on the continuous storyline. I would love to see things continue, but just for the sake of argument, what if we do have a time jump for the start of season two? Personally, I think it's a lazy storytelling tool, but it is possible we will be catching up with our refiners who have been reset and are already settled into other departments. As much as I don't like the reset storyline, Dan Erickson is pretty good about sprinkling in exposition and catching us up on what has come before. We might get references to the incident at the family gala or a manager telling one of the reset macrodads how far they've come in only six months. It would be depressing. They wouldn't have a memory of the MDR rebellion, Grainer's key card, the OTC. It would all be wiped out. Where would they go with this storyline? The former Macrodats might start to reconnect with each other on the severed floor. Some institutional memory may still connect them or compel them to come together. This is the same kind of connection like what I think we were seeing with Bert and Irv in Season 1. It would be a long and slow path to rebuilding the narrative. It's a trip I'm not excited about taking. I do want to quickly mention one more storytelling option they may be setting us up for. Flashbacks. We didn't get any actual flashbacks in Season 1, and I was ready for them a few times. We did step back to see Heli get severed, but that was about it. Filling in some Lumen backstory would be cool. Filling in Mark and Gemma backstory, also cool. What I consider the old-looking makeup job they've done on Michael Cyberry makes me think... They want to use him in a James time jump. Mark Geller, who portrays Keir, disagrees with me. He says, that's just how Cyberry looks. This also might be a little professional ribbing from one stage performer to another. Oh, and speaking of Mark Geller, when are we going to get a Keir flashback? For real, Michael Cyberry is 66 years old. To me, his James character looks like a frail 86-year-old. Sorry, Mark. I think it's preparation for something down the road. If he took off all his makeup and acted a bit more spry, we could easily and believably jump back 20 years. Imagine seeing scenes of the invention and early introduction of the first severance chips. I think seeing some history of the development process would be cool. Meeting a nine-year-old Heli, also cool. I'm betting there were some early testing misfires that might be interesting to witness. We have a lot of great options for Season 2, 
and I'm really excited to see where this creative bunch of folks takes us. But while we're sitting around waiting on season two, there are a few things I can't let go of yet from season one. I talked about a lot of stuff during the podcast, but I also missed a ton. There are some elements I wanted to put a bigger spotlight on, and others I whiffed completely. The Diamond Desk is a perfect example of something needing a bigger spotlight. Diamond Desk is the name given to the central pinwheel cluster in the MDR workspace. This desk was designed and engineered from scratch by production designer Jeremy Hindle and his severance team. Hindle came up with the unique cubicle divider panels that raise and lower. He also created this desk with a central pier. The center post is the only part of the diamond desk that touches the floor. Hindle said he envisioned the central pier as a connection to the underworld of Lumen. This says to me he's not just a designer, he's someone who understands the power of images when it comes to telling a story. The diamond desk cost the production $100,000 to design and manufacture, but it is so integral to the production, Ben Stiller said he thought of the diamond desk as another character. Many times when John Turturro would raise or lower panels in the desk, those weren't scripted or even directed moves. They were just Turturro getting into the Irving character using the panels the way he figured Irv would do it. The diamond desk was so prevalent in scenes, it became an extension of many of the characters' performances. Another part of this incredible epic nine-hour movie I felt like I didn't give enough spotlight to is the original music. I did features on outside songs used in the soundtrack, but I don't feel like I gave enough credit to the music director, Theodore Shapiro, and the incredible original music he created for the Severance soundtrack. Everything you hear that's not Motorhead or Paul Anka or Kava Khan is Shapiro. One of my favorite pieces in the show is what I call the badass Macrodat strut. This is actually a Shapiro original called Interdepartmental. He also created the music of wellness, the intense piece used for the Waffle Party, and so much more. Although I feel like I might have given Mr. Shapiro short shrift, I'm glad to see he did get a bit of recognition for his incredible work on the Severance soundtrack this past year. Shapiro won the 2022 Primetime Emmy for Outstanding Music Composition for a Series Original Dramatic Score. His is one of only two Emmys Severance won at the 2022 Emmys. <clears throat> Robbed. The other statue went to Oliver Latta for his opening animation sequence. Let's keep bouncing that ball around the room. I've got a few more random things I want to cover. Throughout the podcast, I know I mentioned CGI a lot without explaining it at all. CGI stands for Computer Generated Images. It's a generic catch-all term for any video image created or changed in a computer. I talked about those things that were pretty obviously CGI. Within the last couple of days, I happened to find a very interesting two-minute video that gives a quick but cool look at a number of places where Severance uses CGI. 
it's a lot more than you could possibly imagine. All of Irv's paint, even the stuff flowing down through the panels, was entirely created in a computer. Any hall you ever look down, you're never seeing the actual end to the hall. Unless it's a corner, the extended section going off into the distance is CGI. There's a green box in every shot at the end of the real hall. They use that box to extend the hall with computer imagery. Textures have been added all over the place. All those rainy pavement shots we saw with the rabbit in the finale, the pavement was dry when those scenes were shot. Since it's always raining in Kier, the sheen of water was added later in the computer. The snow on the roofs of the townhouses in Mark's subdivision was beefed up later. There was a little, but it was patchy. They covered each roof completely with the computer-generated stuff. I remember seeing those roofs full of snow for the first time and thinking, wow, those must be really well-insulated apartments. As a rule, it looks like they add snow to most of the outdoor shots. As I suspected, the 30-foot relief sculpture of Kier and the Lumen Atrium is entirely CGI. The Homedale complex itself got a serious CGI makeover, both inside and out. It's not as isolated as it looks when it's playing the Lumen building. There are actually a number of houses along the roads leading up to the complex. They've been drawn out. All those cars in the parking lot? Those have been added in. Those dreary and weirdly desolate parking lot scenes are entirely created. They were originally shot with only four or five cars parked right around Mark's car. Just like the rows and rows of stormtroopers in Star Wars, the rest of the cars were added later. They even changed the shape of the parking lot. The real lot actually has spots going right up to the front doors. All of the snow sitting on the ground around the Bell Lab site was also added later. A statue I did identify as CGI in the podcast has turned out to be the real thing. The statue of Kier that appears in the courtyard of the Records Building was a real statue. Mark Geller said he's seen it and it's nearly 30 feet tall. Catherine Shea also mentioned the sculptor who built it. A huge thanks to intrepid refiner and podcast listener Rachel Udelman. Rachel sent a note to severedpod at gmail.com to tell me she actually has the same chair as the ones they use in MDR. She reports it is a Blue Dot Daily Task Chair available from Blue Dot Design and Manufacturing. Although Andrew Baseman said he got a lot of his set decor items from overseas, this one came from a U.S. company. Blue Dot is a small, innovative design firm based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can buy this chair right now from their website for only $650. Although you might want to keep an eye out. Rachel said she got hers on sale. Rachel told me her daughter was the Severance fan initially. When her daughter recognized Mom's chair in MDR, she sent a screen grab of it to Rachel. Rachel was so intrigued by a show with such outstanding taste and design, she watched the free Severance pilot episode. She was, of course, totally hooked, and she had the Severance procedure that same week. Rachel's been a thriving macro data refiner and upstanding member of the Cult of Cure ever since. Praise Cure. Cure, brilliant.
and one cure. A huge shout out to podcast listener and supporter Pete Sunstone. Pete has made a bunch of great posts to the Severance Apple TV Facebook page. Scroll Pete's page and check out some of his original art. Pete also found the Severed podcast fairly early on and has been a huge supporter. He's dropped me a couple of notes and he always puts a like on posts. Pete did something that really energized the show. He made a post to Reddit in the Severance subreddit. It was nothing fancy. I can't do any promotion there because of strict rules against self-promotion. Pete just posted a message about how much he was enjoying the Severed podcast. He asked if anyone else was listening. This one post was a huge boost to listenership. You may be listening to me right now because of Pete. He posted on a Sunday afternoon. By Sunday evening, I was freaking out because the listenership for that day had more than doubled the one-day listener record to that point for the entire podcast. I had no idea what was happening until later when Pete dropped me a note to say, Oh, hey, I made this post. Pete's mention was huge. But Pete wasn't the only one to jump on the severed promo train. You also might be hearing me due to the efforts of Justin Yates. Justin came to the podcast after we'd been running a few weeks, but he jumped in with both feet. Justin made multiple promotional posts for Severed to both Reddit and Facebook. His efforts have also had a major impact on listenership. Even though Pete and Justin are like my own free PR firm, they can't do it all. Please, if you can, refiners, promote Severed on your social media. Talk about both the TV show and the Severed podcast to your friends and followers. There's a bias against podcasts, and I can understand because most of them sound like podcasts. I've tried to make Severed both different and entertaining. Once people find it, they do tend to stay with it and listen to all episodes. It's not for everybody, and I understand that. For the ones who will love it, helping them find it is where I need you. Get to work, refiners. While, of course, getting MTR to their projected numbers by the quarterly deadline in three weeks? Yes, of course. I also want to thank podcast listener Nadia Razdana for making me open my mind about something. For some reason, I have always believed Mark was driving the car when Gemma was killed. I have no idea why I've always thought this, but it was one of those things I didn't even question. Nadia challenged me on it in a discussion thread. Where does it say Mark was driving? Well, once I went back to look, I realized she's right. There's no support anywhere I could find for Mark being behind the wheel or even being involved in the accident. There is the one line Heli used at the end of her first day of work. In the parking lot of Lumen, her Audi tells Mark, Maybe keep your eyes on the icy road. There's a popular theory saying this line was the last thing Gemma said to Mark before he hit the tree. I mentioned it in the podcast. I don't believe he said that line, but this may be why I've always believed the Mark was driving theory. It's just a theory. There's no proof about any of it. It's so off base, don't be surprised if I've gone back and changed places in the podcast where I make a reference to Mark driving. It's very possible, even probable, Gemma was alone in the car. When Devin told any Mark he went back to teaching just three weeks after the accident, it further supported the idea in my mind that Mark was not also in the wreck. Surviving a fatal car wreck does not mean you're back at work in three weeks. 
If Gemma was the driver and she was alone in the car, this opens up a lot of options for Lumen when it comes to hijacking Gemma's body. We saw how Cobell handled retrieving Petey's chip. There does not seem to be a lot of reverence for the dead around Lumen. Of course, it's also possible she didn't even die. It is going to be fun following Gemma slash Ms. Casey even further down the rabbit hole in season two. Thanks again, Nadia Razdana, for this info and for being such a great supporter of the Severed Podcast. I also got a note in from podcast listener Ivana Ganek-Karen about the sounds we're hearing when Irv encounters his black goo. I had read once someone claiming we were hearing a very slowed-down version of Enter Sandman during Irv's first black goo scene in Half Loop. This was interesting, but it didn't make sense to me logically. Why would Irv be hearing Petey's song? It also didn't match up when I laid Enter Sandman over the sequence. I slowed it down and played with the pitch quite a bit. It just did not line up. Turns out the theory I heard was sound, but the song was wrong. Ivana told me it's actually Ace of Spades, Irv's Audi painting song. It's being used in the Black Goose sequence, slowed to about 35% of actual. I tested it out here in the old severed audio labs, and sure enough, it matches up. What we're hearing in the soundtrack has been recut by Theodore Shapiro. The guitars have been replaced by keyboards, but the melody is the same, just slowed down. I pulled this snippet from the actual motorhead cut so you can hear where this starts. This is what the clip sounds like at actual speed. Now, slowing that to 35%, you get... And the music playing during Irv's Black Goo. Listen again. Motorhead slowed down. Actual scene. The Shapiro character is tricky. Thank you, Ivana, and thanks for listening to this Severed Podcast. I mentioned a few names of supportive listeners above, like Pete, Justin, Nadia, Ivana, Rachel, but there are so many more to thank. Jen Carvin is a hoot. I always look forward to her positive and supportive posts. Jen says she listens each week while cooking on Sundays. There's Melanie Gautier, Lise Beecraft, April Jones, Aaron Battles, Rachel Cohn, Melissa McCurry, Lisa Schatz, and so many more. I love seeing the posts, getting the notes, and of course, talking severance with everyone. If I didn't mention your name, or maybe you listen each week but don't post to social media, thank you. Every single listener is important to making Severed a success, and I sincerely thank you for your continued support. All right, let's do some misses and messes. This is stuff I either completely forgot, a miss, or got wrong, a mess. First off, a huge trivia miss in the cold open of the second episode. The guy doing the chip insertion is an actual neurosurgeon. Thanks to podcast listener who was also interviewed in last week's episode, Catherine Shea, for providing background info on our chip sticker. 
The guy in the mask is noted Bronx neurosurgeon Vijay Agarwal. He's a graduate of the Chicago Medical School with offices on Rochambeau Avenue in the Bronx. I had a character mess up in the very first episode. I identified Mark Scout as having the same birthday as Adam Scott, April 3rd of 1973. This would make both men 50 years old as of this year. After seeing a clearer blow-up of Mark's ID, I realize now I didn't get it exactly right. Mark Scout is five years younger than Adam Scott. I was seeing what is actually an eight as a three on Mark's Lumen ID. I think I was seeing it that way because I knew Adam Scott's actual birthday. Since Britt Lauer was born in 1985, this appears to be the production pushing their ages closer together for the love story. Through the magic of TV, although they have the same birth date, Mark Scout is five years younger than Adam Scott. I totally missed a big one at the start of the episode in perpetuity. Petey tells Mark he used to come down to work with red eyes. Petey said they decided he must have an elevator allergy, and the MDR gang even wrote a song about it. On the Severance Apple TV Facebook page, someone posted they wondered what that song sounded like. I thought this was hilarious and said somebody should write lyrics, perform them, and post the results to the page. This discussion caused someone else to post, Oh, you guys didn't know? There already are lyrics to the Elevator Allergy song, and they're canon because they were written by Dan Erickson. Dan's sister Haley made the announcement about the lyrics on Mother's Day of 2022. Dan had already written lyrics to the never-to-be-performed Elevator Allergy song. You hear stories about J.R.R. Tolkien writing epic poems and song lyrics, which were never even published in his stories. This is kind of the same thing. Dan presented Haley with the lyrics as a Mother's Day present. Nice, but I'm betting he forgot to go shopping. Then he also told her it was okay to release them, to be devoured and ripped apart by the rabid and ever-growing legion of Severance fans. So, if you're ready, these are the official lyrics to the Elevator Allergy song. And it even says this should be sung in a swing-style tempo. Psst go the pistons, ding goes the bell, down goes the elevator, all seems well. But the car will never reach its destination true, because that's when Mark S. starts to say, Achoo, 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 elevator allergy, it's true, it's true, no lamer malady. The sneeze and knocks the elevator off its track, and now the Audi world won't take Mark back. Just another reason to love Dan Erickson as the guy behind this series. He wrote the lyrics to a freaking song that was never sung and barely even referenced in the show. I love that. A shout out to podcast listener Suzanne Lewis, who pointed out this miss on the Facebook page. In the episode Grim Barbarity of Optics and Design, Helly faces herself in the mirror for the first time as in any after her suicide attempt. She runs water at the bathroom sink, then rubs her neck hard where you can see the bruises. I wasn't sure what she was doing. I thought maybe she was just rubbing the bruises, symbolically trying to wash them away. Suzanne points out any heli was actually washing off the makeup Audi heli had used to cover the marks. 
If you look at her seated in the kitchenette in a scene just prior, the marks are visible but very faint. After her time at the sink, they are much more pronounced because she wiped off the makeup. Thanks, Suzanne Lewis. I completely missed that one. I also completely whiffed a big one when it comes to actor bios. Adam Scott and Britt Lauer have worked together on a television show before. Adam was a regular on a one-season 2017 Fox sitcom called Ghosted. It was billed as a funny X-Files. Adam was the Mulder-type character who truly believed. He was paired up with Craig Robinson, Daryl from The Office, as a grizzled cop who's not impressed with his alien-happy partner. Britt Lauer was a recurring love interest for Adam's character, but also a possible alien abductee. There were 16 episodes of Ghosted. Britt appeared in three of those as the character Claire. I've got a couple of big misses delivered courtesy of Dan's sister, Haley Erickson Golzer. Haley might be listening to this podcast. She mentioned checking it out in a subreddit, but I don't know if she ever did. If so, hey, Haley, thanks for tuning in. And, you know, if you wanted to recommend the podcast to either Dan or Ben, I wouldn't be offended. Haley will post interesting tidbits she sometimes gets from Brother Dan, like those lyrics to the Elevator song. Haley also dropped these fun tidbits on Twitter. Much of the Muscle Show conversation between Dylan and Irv was not scripted. It was just two creative and goofy guys hilariously ad-libbing. I'm sorry, do you know how much Muscle Shows pay? No, none of us can know that. I imagine it's a tiered system. Perhaps there are different monetary prizes for gold, silver, and bronze. No, uh, my guess is that they do it piecemeal per muscle. So no, I don't think so. Best delt, 30 bucks. Best ab, 20 bucks. Biceps are a little flashier, 75 bucks. I would think lats carry a high value. They're considered very attractive in muscle-building circles and in society at large. Lats are bullshit, dude. Also, Haley dropped this fun prop tidbit. The Egan bingo card created by Dylan in the show was actually handwritten by her brother, series creator Dan Erickson. Yes, they have an art department on Severance, but I totally understand this. You don't want something like the bingo card looking typeset or laid out. Handing it to the art department means it's going to look nice even if you don't want it to. The finished card as it is looks like a guy with no design experience at all made a grid at his desk and hand wrote the answers in each box, which is pretty much what happened. Another big miss, a trivia miss. I never talked about the term CEO. I talk about and reference Lumen's CEOs constantly, but never discuss the origin of the title. CEO, as an acronym for Chief Executive Officer, can be traced all the way back to 1782. The American Congress of the Confederation used the term to refer to the heads of the 13 colonies. These colony leaders would later be referred to as governors. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, using CEO to mean the head of a for-profit company can be traced to Australia in 1914. In the U.S., we didn't refer to company heads using the term CEO until 1972. Prior to that, in the U.S., the role of CEO was usually referred to as the president of the company. When we say Keir was the first CEO, this is actually a retroactive use of the term. At the time Keir was in charge, he was most likely being called the president of Lumen. 
Another huge miss on my part, not comparing the cult of Kier to the Church of Scientology. I read Going Clear. I was even seeing it early on, but never got around to mentioning it in the podcast. The incredibly narcissistic leader, who was also a prolific writer? L. Ron Hubbard has to be the pattern. Hubbard actually holds the Guinness World Record for writing more published books than any other author in history. The blue suits on the men, the claims of saving the world, the dead leader who is still revered through paintings and his writings, the practice of outlawing any other author than the leader. It's all the same in Scientology. The first time I saw the break room and how Helly had to put her hands in the forms on the table, I thought this is a Scientology auditing session with an e-meter. Whether intentional or not, the hallmarks of Scientology are all over severance. Yet in 14 hours of podcasts, I did not manage to say a word about it. One more complete miss on my part. Did you know the name Helena is taken from the Greek? It is derived from the Greek root word Eli, E-L-E, which means light, torch, or bright. Not only is lumen derived from the Latin word for light, Helena is taken from the Greek word for light. Here's a fun detail recently reported in the Severance Apple TV subreddit, so you know it's got to be accurate. Herb's dog Radar is being played by veteran animal actor Ditto. Ditto, a very good boy by IMDb standards, is turning up with roles on all of the hottest streaming properties. He was recently spotted on the new season of Succession, portraying Tom Wamsgam's dog, Mondale. Time for a little shameless cross-promotion. If you are a fan of my hyperactive ADHD style of editing and production, coupled with almost disturbing levels of in-depth research on every possible detail, I'd like to tell you about my other podcast, my first podcast. In the fall of 2020, at the start of the pandemic, my wife and I embarked on a rewatch of the 1978 through 1982 CBS sitcom WKRP in Cincinnati. WKRP in Cincinnati. We did a podcast episode on all 90 syndication episodes of WKRP with scene-by-scene walkthroughs just like Severed. Plus, we managed to do interviews with more than 20 writers, producers, guest stars, and we even talked to Gary Sandy, who played program director Andy Travis for all four seasons. If you're a fan of classic sitcoms, WKRP is a gem. The podcast is called the WKRP Cast. You can find it in any podcast directory. Past episodes are currently in reruns. That's the WKRP Cast, hosted by Alan and Donna Stare. Please give it a listen. So what happens to the Severed podcast? Don't unfollow just yet. Do keep listening to those past episodes over and over and over. I'm afraid you don't mean it. Again, please. I'll leave the season one episodes posted if you'll promise to keep listening to them. Spread the word. If a friend discovers Severance, watches the whole season, and then asks what next, make sure to tell them to watch again, only this time with the Severed podcast. I will be watching intently right along with you when season two comes out, but I don't plan to be doing an after show podcast. There are several after shows already. What I prefer to do is a rewatch. For me, a rewatch means research. It takes time to assemble. I also like to have the long view of the entire season when I'm reviewing an episode. 
I will start scripting throughout the season, so once we hit the end of the run, my turnaround on new episodes shouldn't be too long. Be watching the Facebook page or the Discord for announcements as to when I'll be posting new podcast episodes. I promise I will be back for season two. This has been way too much fun. As it looks now, primary shooting on the second season will finish in June of 2023. Editing will happen through the fall. Although I'd love to see a November release on season two, I'm thinking we are more realistically looking at a February of 2024 release on season two. Thanks so much to everyone who has supported Severed, the Ultimate Severance podcast in this first season. Those of you who hop on the Facebook page and say how much you're enjoying it, thank you. The notes of encouragement are very much appreciated. I realize Severed is not for everybody, and I completely understand. But for those of you who got into it, I'm very grateful. I'm glad you like the style and appreciate the quality. Audio editing is a creative outlet for me. I love to make these things, but it is so much more rewarding when people also listen to what I've done. It's like getting somebody to look at your painting or read your novel. Post a five-star rating and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Please keep promoting the podcast to new Severance fans. Your comments and support are always greatly appreciated. Keep sending those notes, theories, and comments to severedpod at gmail.com. I love to read them, and I do respond. Maybe give me a couple of days, but I will get back to you. Now, refiners, quarters over. Until we get a new batch of files from upstairs, you can go hang out in the kitchenette, I guess. If you do choose to leave, as always, please make sure to stagger your exits. You've been listening to Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Severed is written, produced and hosted by Alan Stair. Severed is not endorsed by Red Hour Productions, Endeavor Content or Apple TV+. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Severance, the Severance logo and all video and audio of Severance and Severance characters are registered trademarks of Red Hour, Endeavor Content, Apple TV Plus or their respective copyright holders. Please make sure to leave a 5-star rating and review for Severed at Apple Podcasts.